Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. And uh, we have studied last week this uh, story of Jesus healing the, the two demoniacs, uh, in, starting in verse 28. And uh, we did not finish. We're going to, a little bit of review, wrap up this passage and then move right on into the next uh, section, the next passage there in Matthew 9. Uh, but let me uh, uh, first read verses 28 to 31. It says, When he came to the other side in the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Uh, we... Looked at this last week. We talked about these two demon-possessed men. Uh, we said there were many demons in them. In fact, in Mark's account, uh, when Jesus said to this uh, man, what is your name? Uh, the demon answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, in other words, this man was possessed by so many demons that he wasn't even the one speaking. And these two guys were living in the tombs, and they were violent and deranged. There was no other place they would could live. And uh, according to Mark and Luke's account, they saw Jesus coming from a distance, and they go running towards him and the disciples. And so they come running down this hill towards Jesus to the shore there, and, uh, and all of a sudden something very interesting happens. They run up, and they fall down before Jesus. Uh, the word that's used in both Mark and Luke is the word which means to prostrate oneself in worship. Uh, demons hate and loathe everything about God, about Jesus Christ, but they were powerless to do anything but bow down before him when in his presence. Uh, so they fall down and verse 29 says, they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? And then have you come here to torment us before the time? Think of it. These, these beings are going to be damned for all of eternity, and they know it. Uh, and they despise Jesus. They hate him, but they worship him because they're forced to by his power. And they know that they have their eschatology right. They, they've got it right. They know it's not now that you're supposed to be the, the, uh, here. And so they make a request. It, it's rather bizarre they they ask begin to entreat him saying if you're going to cast us out send us into this herd of swine and uh mark 5 13 tells us there were 2,000 pigs in this herd and uh so it's a large herd of pigs uh, so there must have been a lot of demons uh you know a legion in the roman army was 6,000 soldiers we can't say there was that many demons but I always look at this and kind of go, well, there was 2,000 pigs and two guys. Maybe there was 1,000 in each one. I don't know. But uh, we can't say that for sure. And so then we come, verse 32, to the domination of Christ. He says to them, he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. 
Now, how did Jesus cast out these demons? He simply commanded them go, and they went. Uh, when he first got off the boat, they knew he was in charge. They're afraid of what he's going to do. It wasn't that he did it. It was how he did it, instantaneously and totally. Um, uh, the lesson here for the disciples is that Jesus has absolute authority and dominion over the supernatural world of demons. He, he can cast them out. And to see an entire herd of 2,000 pigs go running off a cliff into a lake and drown, every one of those disciples knew something supernatural had just happened. Uh, and they saw that Jesus has absolute authority, divine authority over the world of the supernatural. And even more than that, to see the impact on these two men who were suddenly set free from the demons. And that's part of the story that Matthew does not include for us. Uh, but both Mark and Luke do. And that brings us to our next point, which is the desire of the people. Look at verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Now, can you imagine what the herdsmen were thinking? Uh, they see Jesus and his disciples come ashore. The demon-possessed men running at them, screaming at them, and then falling down before Jesus. Then the demons ask to go into the pigs. Jesus says, go. And just a few minutes later, their entire herd of 2,000 pigs goes berserk and runs like a huge stampede over the side of the cliff or steep embankment down into the sea and drowns. These guys had to be scared out of their minds. Now, they aren't the owners. They're just the herdsmen, uh, the guys who move the herd around to various grazing areas out on the hills. And when they saw what had happened, they ran out of there as fast as they could go. That's what the Greek word translated ran away means. Uh, and they reported everything to everybody in town, including what happened to the demoniacs. Uh, apparently, they made a connection between the casting out of the demons from the two men and the stampede of the hogs into the lake. Uh, perhaps they were close enough to overhear the demons ask to go into the herd. We, we know that they saw the after effects on the two demoniacs because Luke tells us that they told everyone in town that the two men had been healed. Uh, so I'm sure they're telling everybody they encountered because it says that the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Uh, now, when the crowd got there, what did they find? Well, both Mark and Luke tell us that they found the man, and presumably both of them, uh, sitting down, clothed, and in their right minds. Uh, and at that point, you might expect the text to say, and they fell down and worshipped him. Uh, but no, that's not what happened, is it? Uh, that's what the demons had done, but not this crowd. Uh, no, both Mark and Luke tell us they became frightened. Luke even adds that they were gripped with great fear. All three of the synoptic gospels tell us something similar to that. Matthew says, and, and that was that they implored him to leave their region. Now, why did they say that? Why are they saying, please leave? Well, I'm sure that the owners of the pigs wanted him to leave because they're afraid of what greater economic loss to their finances might occur if Jesus stayed around. Uh, but most of these people were not the owners of the pigs. So why did they want Jesus to leave? Because they're scared to death of Jesus. They're in a panic. Here was a man 
who had just cast out a legion of demons with just a word and healed two demon-possessed men. But they didn't rejoice with those who were rejoicing. They didn't bring their sick to Jesus and ask him to heal him, them. They didn't praise Jesus for what he'd done to the two men. No, instead they say, please leave our area. Get out of here. Now, why would they do that? Because, folks, when unholy men face a holy God, they are in terror. That takes us right back to Isaiah 6, doesn't it? Where Isaiah, the best man in the land, sees the exalted, thrice holy God, and he says, woe is me. That's the word of a curse. Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself when he saw God because his own unholiness was exposed. And when Peter saw the majesty of Jesus' power, he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And we saw in the story of Jesus stilling the storm, it says that, that when the storm came, they were afraid. But after Jesus calmed the storm, Mark tells us that they became very much afraid. Uh, they're more afraid of him in the calm than they were of the storm because they realized that God was in their boat. And they're in awe of God. They saw the supernatural and it panicked them. So these people saw one who could control demons. They saw one who could control animals. They saw one who could take the souls of two men and give them back to them as calm and peaceful as a sleeping baby. And they're scared to death. They saw that uh, God is what they saw. What they saw was God. I don't think they understood that, but they knew it was supernatural. And men don't like that. It makes them uncomfortable. It's as if they said, give us back our pigs and go away. Men can handle pigs. They can't handle God. The mystery of the supernatural, they just can't handle. By the way, this is the first recorded instance of open opposition to the Messiah. Uh, and it all just grows from here on out. They showed no interest at all in who Jesus was or in his teaching or work. They seemed totally indifferent to his person and ministry. They, di they didn't care if he was the Messiah. Uh, they, he didn't seem... To, he doesn't seem to care whether his powers uh, were good or evil. They didn't seem to care about that or, or what he might share with them. They, they just knew he was supernatural and they felt impotent. Uh, they saw his power. They're absolutely panicked in awe of him. And instead of falling at his feet in worship, they say, get out of here. Go away. We don't want you. You know, people say all the time, you know, if, if people could just see some miracles, they would believe. That's not true, is it? These people saw an incredible miracle and they didn't believe. Uh, and the Jews saw hundreds of miracles during Jesus' three years of ministry and they still didn't believe. It just made them hate him more and more and more until they finally killed him. Uh, the truth is most people, when they're exposed to the awesomeness of holy God, they will reject him and run away because they love their darkness. I grew up here in Pinellas County when it was far more rural than it is now. Uh, there were only 200,000 people in the entire county back then, and over half of them lived down in St. Petersburg. Uh, most of North Pinellas County, where I lived, was very rural with small towns and cities uh, separated by several miles from one another. There were orange groves and large areas that were wooded and undeveloped. And rural areas were always have far more insects and bugs than urban areas, don't they? Uh, and in those days, there weren't a lot of pest control 
businesses. Most people just bought bug spray and did their own pest control, spraying the roaches that always invaded their houses. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't matter how clean your house was. If you lived in Florida in those days, you had roaches in your house. Um, and Oh, yeah. And I remember coming home after dark, and before we turned on the lights in our little house, my mom would grab a can of bug spray that she kept near the door, and when we turned on the lights, the roaches would run for cover, and my mom would chase them down, spraying <laughs> that, that bug spray, but trying to catch them before they could scurry back into their dark places. Roaches don't like the light, and sinful men in the presence of the light of God are the same way. They're just like cockroaches, and when they're exposed to the light of God, they love their darkness, so they will run away from God. But in contrast to the Gadarenes who rejected Jesus that day, there are still these two guys for whom he's from whom he has cast out the demons. We find their story in Mark's and Luke's account. Let's look over at Mark's account in Mark 5. This is just too rich to pass by. Mark 5, beginning in verse 18. Mark only talks about the primary guy, the guy who was the loudest spokesman of these two guys. He sees that Jesus is about to leave, and verse 18 says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. He wants to go with Jesus. He knew he owed everything to him. But verse 19 tells us Jesus wouldn't let him do it, and instead he tells him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. This is interesting, because do you remember what Jesus told the leper? He said, don't tell anyone who healed you. But he tells this guy, go back and tell everyone what great things God has done for you and his mercy to you. Why the difference? Because this was Gentile territory. The Gentiles didn't present the same kind of threat to Jesus' ministry as did the Jews. Jesus was confronting the entire Jewish religious system at every turn, and they were incensed by it, and they were seeking to destroy him. But then notice this, verse 20, <clears throat> says that the man went away, and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Another reason why Jesus wouldn't let this man go out with him is he's sending this man out as a missionary to the Gentile region of Decapolis. This is another illustration of the fact that the gospel was not just for the Jews. It went to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Jesus had been announcing his kingdom to the Jews, and now he's sending this man, and possibly his friend also, back to the Gentiles to spread the news of what God has accomplished in him. And notice that Jesus had told him to go tell everyone what great things who the Lord has done for you. In other words, what God has done for you. But it says in verse 20, notice this difference that the man went away and proclaimed what great things who? Jesus had done for him. He made the connection that Jesus is God. Well, this man was apparently a very effective missionary. The end of verse 20 
says everyone was amazed. And just a couple of chapters later, starting in Mark 7, 31 and going until chapter 8, verse 9, Jesus made another trip to the Decapolis. And there was a massive crowd that came to be healed and to hear him teach for three days. In fact, that was the time and place where the feeding of the 4,000 from seven loaves and a few small fish took place. I'm sure many of those people were there because of the testimony of that healed demoniac. Isn't that a great picture of Christ's love? He went back to heal and teach the very same people who had begged him, please go away. His compassion for their souls was far greater than their fear and hatred of him. And so he left them, this missionary man, to prepare them for his return. And then later on, he went back to them. And that's the way he is today. The grace of God is infinitely greater than that of unrighteous sinners who still hate him and run away from him today. He continually pleads for them to come to him and find rest for their souls. So how wonderful it is to know that the grace of God, the grace of Christ is extended to those who don't even want it. They don't even want it. And he extends them that grace. And that brings us to the end of the story of the demoniac. Before we move into chapter 9, let me pause and ask, are there any questions or comments? That was good right there at the end, wasn't it? I hope you thought it was. You learned something? I enjoyed studying it. <laughs> so. Well, let's, let's move then into chapter 9, and let's read the, next, the first eight verses. It says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic living, lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But then, but when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As I read those verses, I hope that the phrase at the end of verse 2 jumped out at you. It says, your sins are forgiven. Matthew included this story as one of Jesus' healing miracles here because of its theme, its theme is Jesus' power over sin. Uh, let me ask you, what's the most distinctive message that Christianity has to proclaim? We've already, yeah, undoubtedly, unquestionably, the most distinctive message Christianity has to proclaim is the reality that sin can be forgiven. That's the heart and the very lifeblood of the Christian message. Although the Christian faith has many truths and values and virtues, each which has a myriad of applications, the most essential message that God ever gave to mankind is the good news that sinful man can be fully forgiven of his sin and brought into eternal fellowship with God. That is the heart of the message of Christianity. That's precisely the message of this miracle here in verses 1 to 8. Now, as I've told you before, Matthew's been focusing on various miracles of our Lord in chapters 8 and 9, 
all of which are intended to present to us the deity of Jesus Christ. But beyond that purpose, they're intended to demonstrate Jesus' character as the Messiah of Israel. In other words, it's not just that Matthew presents a series of miracles to prove that Jesus is God. It's that he gives us specific miracles designed to show that he fulfilled very specific messianic kingdom prophecies so that Israel would know that this is the one who is the Messiah and who will introduce to the world the kingdom of God. Uh, so there's a very Jewish flavor to these miracles and a very Old Testament character and significance to the kind of miracles that Matthew selects under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to present in his gospel. For example, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would have power over the curse in the physical world. Isaiah 30, 23 and 24 predicted that during Messiah's reign, there would be an abundance of rain and crops and the livestock would flourish. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 speaks of the desert blossoming profusely. Isaiah 11.6 says the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Isaiah 65.20 says no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at an age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will, thought, will be thought accursed. Uh, by the calming of the storm and the healing of those terrible diseases, Jesus was giving a foretaste of his eventual taming of the entire natural world. Concerning the supernatural realm, the book of Daniel prophesies at great length about the Messiah's defeat of Satan and his demonic forces when he comes to establish his kingdom. And so by casting out demons, Jesus proved that his power was superior to Satan's. In regard to the spiritual realm in Isaiah 44, 22, the Messiah tells his chosen people, Israel, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, tells us that the Messiah will say and do to his chosen people, the nation of Israel, what he's going to say to them when he establishes his kingdom. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so by Jesus' forgiveness of this paralytic here in Matthew 8, many others, Jesus further demonstrated power that's reserved for God alone and that which the scriptures prophesied would characterize the Messiah. There's also a climatic arrangement in Matthew's part on his presentation of these miracles. Uh, we've already gone through five of the nine miracles that are in these two chapters and we've seen a kind of flow from the lesser to the greater uh, as we arrive in chapter 9. For example, as we go back, Matthew began telling us how Jesus with just a touch of a hand cleansed a leper. But then without, without even a touch, he heals a centurion servant. And then he banishes the fever of Peter's wife's mother. Then he went beyond the physical miracles and he began to heal, deal with nature as he stilled the winds and the waves and the storm in the Sea of Galilee. And then he showed not only his power over nature, but his power over supernatural forces when he cast out the demons. 
And now he goes even beyond that in this ascending drama of miracles, and he shows he has power over the root of all man's misery, which is sin. He deals with human guilt and human pollution, the evil that separates man from his maker. And so the great physician can not only heal the sick and steal, steal the storm and deal with demons, but he can bring to the human soul the thing it needs the most, which is the forgiveness of sin. It's another mark of the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew majors on the authority of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that statement. For example, we find that Matthew bookends the life of Christ with statements about his authority. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 28, after the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he spoke as one having authority. Remember that? We call that his moral or theological or doctrinal authority. And then when you come to the very end of the book, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. We would call that his governing or sovereign authority or ruling authority. And now here in this passage, we meet another one of his types of authority. You might call it his redemptive authority. He has the authority to forgive sin. And all of these are ways in which Matthew marks out the authority of Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, he showed us his authority over religion. In chapter 8, 1 to 17, his authority over disease. In 8, 23 to 27, his authority over nature. In 8, 28 to 34, his authority over demons. And now in 9, chapter 9, 1 to 8, his authority over sin. And so there's an ascending reality to the power of Christ, and we'll see it continue later on in verses 18 to 26 when we see his authority over death itself. So Matthew doesn't, he didn't just randomly select some miracles of Jesus and write them down. No, they have an ascendancy and significance and a specificity in that they are pointing to something very particular about his power to fulfill Old Testament promises regarding the Messiah. And that makes the unbelief and the rejection of the Pharisees all the more unbelievable and heinous because of the accuracy of the fulfillment is so specific. So with all of that in mind, let's look at this, the third miracle in this section, second section of three. Remember, they come in threes, threes. Three miracles, then an interlude. Three miracles, and an interlude. Three miracles, and an interlude. Uh, it begins with a transitional verse in verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now, Jesus had healed the demon-possessed man on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but we don't actually know how much time has elapsed between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Matthew is, in his gospel, he's not so concerned with chronology as he is with specific miracles to fit his purpose as inspired by the Spirit. So we don't know what the time gap is here. It may be chronological, but we can't say with any specificity. But we do know that Jesus got back in a boat and proceeded from back to the west and came to his own city. Now you might think that his own city is referring to Nazareth, uh, the town in which he grew up and worked as a carpenter before starting his ministry. But after he announced his ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, what happened? What happened? They rejected him, didn't they? Yeah, they even tried to kill him by throwing him over a cliff. Uh, and he passed through their midst unnoticed and 
And in back in Matthew 4, 13 to 4, 13 to 15, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken <coughs> through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he left Nazareth because they threw him out. He was a prophet without honor in his own country. And he reestablished his home just a few miles away in the little town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's also very likely that he took up residence in the house of Peter. Uh, it seems that as though the house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law was his home in Capernaum. He was sort of like a permanent guest. Uh, he wasn't there a lot, but when he was in Capernaum, uh, that's where he could be found. And so he has a temporary place in Capernaum in the house of Peter. Now you'll remember that before he crossed the Sea of Galilee, the miracles that he's doing in Capernaum and the surrounding area had generated massive crowds of people. And they're following him everywhere. He's healing all kinds of diseases, casting out demons, doing all kinds of mighty works. The crowds are building and building. And now when he comes back, it's only natural that a, to assume that another large crowd is going to come to wherever he is. And so as he comes back to Peter's house, that is precisely what happened. And so we can fill in more of the details because Mark 2 and Luke 5 contain the parallel accounts of this incident, and it adds more details, other details. It's marvelous how each one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each writing about the same story, pick out various points in that story pertinent to their own purposes. Uh, it's proof that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible. He didn't just turn them into robots who just mechanically wrote down the facts of the story. Uh, but they maintain their own personality, their own style, their own purpose in writing the text. And so when we put Mark's and Luke's account together with this, we see the whole picture. So Jesus was in a house, very likely Peter's house, and it's very possible they were upstairs. You see, in those days, it was common to build a two-story house, and on the second floor was a large room where social gatherings occurred. You'll recall that on the night of his betrayal when Jesus and his disciples gathered to celebrate the Passover, they were in an upper room. Uh, and you see similar scenes in the Gospels where Jesus is dining at a table with all of the disciples. Uh, it would be impossible to accommodate a group that large in a typical Jewish home without an upper room. Uh, Elijah stayed in the upper room of the widow's house. Uh, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead in her upper room. Uh, so it was very common to build houses with an upper room in which large groups could gather for meals, social events, and the like. And the kitchen and other living areas were downstairs. And on top of the upper room was the roof. They were flat. They were made with beams covered with a layer of branches over which was a thick layer of mud plaster or, or clay tiles. And they were actually quite sturdy. And, and almost every home had an outside staircase that went up the side of the house to access the roof. Uh, the roof was a place to sleep or to rest uh, during the hot summer nights. In 1 Samuel 9.26, we're told that Saul was apparently sleeping on the roof 
of his house, and at daybreak Samuel called him down to send him away. In Acts 10, Peter was on the roof of Simon the Tanner's home when he had the vision of the uh, sheet of full of unclean animals before he was called to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius the Gentile centurion. So then on this occasion, Jesus is in a house, which is probably a lot like I described, and the, ho- the crowd has literally jammed the house. Uh, They're all packed into the upper room. They're probably hanging on the ladder going up to the upper room. Uh, There's just not any room left to turn around. Everybody's jammed in there. The Lord is there teaching them. Mark and Luke tell us that included among the crowd were some scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. Undoubtedly, they were there to hear this renowned teacher and miracle worker in order to check him out, uh, determine what the deal was with him, hear him say something that they didn't like, and he was going to accommodate them in that way. And then all of a sudden, an amazing event takes place, and that's what we see beginning in verse 2. Now, as we go through the story, we're going to see six aspects of it. Obviously, we won't finish it today, uh, but they are the friend's faith, Jesus' forgiveness, the scribe's accusation, Jesus' reasoning, the paralytic's healing, and the crowd's fear. Uh, Let's begin with the friend's faith. Uh, First part of verse 2. It says, And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. So you can stop right there. Now, once again, the translators of the New American Standard, which I love, but uh, they, they made a mistake. They left out a word in this first sentence in order to make it read more smoothly in English. But when they did that, you missed something. You miss the emphasis that Matthew is putting on this story. In the Greek, the sentence starts out, and behold, uh, which is almost like adding an exclamation point for emphasis. Uh, Matthew is saying, get this. This is unusual. This is unique. This is wonderful. But all Matthew tells us is that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So we have to go to Mark and Luke to fill in the gaps in the story. Matthew doesn't tell us who brought this man to Jesus, but Mark tells us it was four men who were carrying him. They were at the very least good friends of his or perhaps family members, and they're carrying him on a bed or stretcher. Apparently they had heard Jesus was in town uh, and they heard about his other healings, and so they carried their dear friend all the way to Capernaum to see Jesus in order for him to heal their paralyzed friend. He may have recruited them to do this for him. He was a man who was paralyzed. The Greek word is paraludikos. Uh, It's the same word that's used of the centurion's servant back in chapter 8, verse 6. He was paralyzed. We aren't told how or why, just that this man was paralyzed, unable to walk or use his legs at the very least. He had a loss of motor function, the mechanical function of the body, sometimes a loss of sensory ability. He may have been a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. We just don't know. Uh, Paralysis can come about in a lot of ways. It can come about as a result of an accident, results in a neck injury or back injury. It can come about because of a birth defect or a disease condition such as muscular dystrophy or polio or syphilis even. Uh, But it's apparent that this is a very severe paralysis because he was completely dependent upon his friends and family members to carry him on the bed. He was apparently unable to move in any way, unable to assist those who moved him, so that it took four men 
to carry him on his bed or stretcher. It would have been a wooden frame, uh, two long poles with cross poles at the head and the foot, and with ropes, they then tied a, a, a weave of ropes between those two, and they would put a pallet on the ropes and carried him on that stretcher bed. Now, paralysis is a very difficult thing to deal with, even with all the modern technology and equipment that's available today. But in those days, it would have been extremely difficult to be paralyzed. They had no apparatus, no medical knowledge, and so the individual would be in grave distress. But let me add that in the Jewish culture of biblical times, almost all sickness, illness, tragedy, and the like were, was thought to be the result of sin in the life of the individual involved or possibly in his or her parents' or grandparents' lives. In his mind and in the minds of most of the people who saw him, they would consider his paralysis to be a vivid demonstration of God's judgment on him for his sin. Remember the story in John 9 of the man who was born blind? Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Uh, going all the way back to Job, after all of the tragedy that befell him, his three friends insisted that Job was suffering because of sin in his life. Now, there is a sense in which that kind of thinking is correct. All sickness is linked to sin, because if Adam hadn't sinned, there would be no sickness and death in this world. But it doesn't mean that all sickness is the direct result of sin in the life of that specific individual. So they were wrong, and they were reflecting the theology of that day, that if you're sick, it's because you were sinful. And so this paralyzed man not only suffered from the incapacitation and disability, but he also suffered from the stigma that went with it. That he, he suffered from an overwhelming sense of the fact that he was sinful. And everyone who saw him would consider him to be an illustration of God's judgment on him for sinning. So it would not be uncommon for such people to seek to be left alone, to avoid being around crowds. But this man wanted to come see Jesus. He wanted to be healed. He believes his sin has caused God to judge him with paralysis, and he wants both forgiveness and healing. And so his friends took him to Jesus. Now this is where Matthew leaves out what has always been the part that every Sunday school kid loves to hear. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that when these four guys arrived with their friend on a stretcher, there was no room to get through the crowd to get to Jesus. People were everywhere. They are even standing outside the door so they couldn't even get inside the house. So they took the stairs up to the roof, and once there, they removed the tiles, dug a hole through the branches and the mud under them, and lowered this paralyzed man down into the center of the room right in front of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking that if you were the homeowner, Peter, <laughs> you would be angry about the damage to your roof. But none of the Gospels mention anything about that. And scholars tell us that the roofs of that day were fairly easy to repair. So within a few hours after this, the roof was probably closed back up again. Who knows, by, perhaps by the healed man and his friends. We don't know. Think about the size of the hole. Yeah. And then all three synoptic gospels record that seeing their faith, 
Jesus began speaking to the paralyzed man. Now, how do we know they had faith? Well, obviously they had faith that Jesus could heal him because look at the effort they went through to get this man in front of Jesus. They clearly believed that Jesus could do something about the man's condition. Perhaps they had heard about Jesus healing the leper earlier or, or even more likely, they had probably heard about Jesus healing the centurion's paralyzed slave boy. Uh, that had also taken place in Capernaum, which was certainly not a large city and the centurion was a well-known man in the area. So the news of Jesus healing his paralyzed slave would have spread through town quickly. Uh, so they believed Jesus could heal their friend also. So first they had to carry him all the way to Jesus. They'd probably learned that Jesus was there in the house. They may have gone over and saw the crowd, realized they'd never get him through the mob, so they probably figured that the roof was their only option. One of them probably had to run home and get some long ropes to tie onto the stretcher's frame. Then they climbed the staircase with their friend on the stretcher. Not, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and then tile by tile, they started opening up a large hole in the roof. They had to remove the tiles, dig through the hardened mud, remove all the branches that supported it, and that is nothing more than demonstration of persistent, insistent, inventive faith. And Jesus saw it. Now there are times when Jesus healed people that had no faith. But there are times when he healed people with little faith. And, but he was especially inclined to heal people with great faith. In fact, in chapter 9, 18, we'll see again where it tells us that a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And that's great faith. And Jesus healed her. In chapter 9, verse 28, it says, When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And so verse 29 says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Jesus was especially disposed towards those with this kind of faith. And that leads us to our next aspect or point in the story, and that's Jesus' forgiveness. Look at the second part of verse 2. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. So now they lower their friend through the hole. He's lying in front of Jesus. Some Bible teachers think that he may have even been paralyzed in terms of his speech because none of the Gospels record him saying a word. I'm not, I'm not sure I would go that far in terms of his paralysis, but the, the Gospel writers often leave out elements of an event that are unimportant to the story, and there's nothing regarded whether, whether the man requested Jesus to heal him or whether his friends were yelling down through the hole what they wanted or whether people in the crowd who knew the man said anything to Jesus about his condition. We just don't know. But I'm pretty sure this guy was probably apprehensive and perhaps even scared and afraid. He, he knew what the thinking was of those in the crowd, that his sin had brought about his paralysis. He's now lying there, scared but hopeful that Jesus will heal him. And so Jesus, seeing their faith, speaks to the man and he says, Take courage, son. Now that's the perfect thing to say to a frightened man. Now I want to break down the two words that Jesus used here because I think it will open up the heart of Jesus for this man just a little bit more. First, he uses the word tharseo. Tharseo. Uh, and I left off the accent on the eta there. The, not eta, the epsilon. Uh, it means to be courageous, to be confident. But to understand it fully... You have to compare it to another Greek word, which is also translated 
take courage. It is the word talmao, talmao. Uh, but while both words can be translated the same, there is a difference between them. Here's the difference. Talmao, second word down here, refers to outward boldness. It's the kind of courage that says, grit your teeth, be tough, and master your fear. It's the kind of courage that says, get up, act, and master your fear. But Tharseo isn't like that. Tharseo says, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's absolutely nothing to fear, so be courageous. And that's the word the Lord uses. Jesus doesn't say to him, hey guy, grit your teeth and master your fear. No, he says, child, what are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear. The second word Jesus uses that I want to mention here is this word, technon. It is translated son here, but it is commonly translated child. Uh, it's a word of infinite tenderness. Here's a man who's overwrought with his sin. He's paralyzed. He is, and the theology of that day had told him it's because of his sin. The, the society has stigmatized him as a sinner who's under God's judgment. He knows he's a sinful man. He believes that this man Jesus has the power of God. He has the faith as a sinner to go before this man who he recognizes has power from God to heal people and take his chances. And he's afraid. And that's why the Lord says to him, take courage, child. Stop being afraid. There's nothing to fear. Think about that for a moment. There's plenty to fear if you come before God as a sinner without repentance, right? But there was nothing to fear when this man came because he obviously had a broken and contrite heart. That's obvious because the Lord doesn't forgive the sins of people who don't. This man's heart was right. It's not the one who tries to hide his sin who has nothing to fear. It's the one who acknowledges it who has nothing to fear. This man was shaken with grief. He was overcome with fear. He was burdened with guilt. Whether or not his paralysis was truly the result of his sin was not the issue. He believed it was. And so his sin was of great concern to him. And he knows that Jesus can heal him. In fact, he and his friends firmly believe that Jesus can and will heal him. But there is still the issue of sin that is burdening his heart and mind. And Jesus says to him, take courage. There's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus responded to that man's faith. And we all want to know about the, how, the next words that Jesus spoke to him. But... We're going to stop. <laughs> because our. No, no. The, I, I want you to know that uh, that other word, that very long word that's written up there, is not a Greek word. It's, not, it's in a language that only one person in this room possibly has heard before. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, so, uh, and of course, I'll write that when I get to that. But 
to hear the rest of this, you're going to have to come back in two weeks because next week is Labor Day weekend and it's time once again for the Mills family reunion. And so Frank will be teaching that weekend for me next weekend. Would you pronounce that word before we leave? No. <laughs> I have to look at my notes. I've got it. I've got it done phonetically in my notes. Isu Maggie Jujun Niner Mick. But it's not. It's not. That's all one word. Okay. Can I ask a question about the end of verse 8, which we didn't cover, I know. 